This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hello, I'm Lale Arikoglu, and welcome to a food-packed episode of Women Who Travel. Today we're asking, what defines a national dish? Who decides? Is it tradition? Is it the people who grow the ingredients? Or is it governments or ad agencies? A little later... I'll be chatting to Mallory Santucci, culinary producer for Condé Nast's Bon Appetit, about how they approach the idea across the magazine's pages and in their test kitchen. I feel like oftentimes, if you talk about a national dish or food in general, I feel like it gets tricky because food culture doesn't necessarily abide by borders all the time. In national dish, I ended up choosing six countries which I knew well myself, and where the cuisines were really fascinating and with a fascinating story. First, Anja von Bremsen, an author of six cookbooks. Her newest work, National Dish, is a blend of memoir, history, and culinary travelogue. I look at this very traditional French dish, pot a feu, pot on the fire, which is a boiled dinner. Then I moved to Naples to research pizza and pasta. I go to Tokyo and spend a month there researching ramen, and I'm also researching rice, which is a cornerstone of like the national identity, national diet. I go to Spain, to Seville, for tapas, and then to Oaxaca uh, for mole and tortillas. Italy, France, Spain, Mexico, Japan, and Turkey, where she eats in bars, fancy restaurants, and from a host of food carts to try and understand what forms each place's national dish. The whole point of my book is to deconstruct the idea of a national cuisine and to see how it came about and how recent it is. And national dishes can become symbols of nationalism, of power. There's a lot of money the countries put into promoting these dishes. Um, so it's not, it's not all benign. There, there, there's a side of it that, that, that is very complicated, and I explore that as well. There is a quote in your Istanbul section, chapter, um, that took me right back to my childhood summers. And apologies, because I'm going to quote you. But you write, Back at home, I sat with the windows open wide on the Bosphorus view. Tankers inclined north and south in the last light, dwarfing the ferries that would glow like paper lanterns come nightfall. And 
My childhood memories of going there with my family is sitting on the terrace at my cousin's house and watching that exact scene. And it would always be accompanied by an inordinate amount of food that I was usually being force-fed because in Turkey, no matter how much you eat, someone's always trying to make you eat more. And so as someone who spends a lot of time there, I, I'm desperate to know what the flavors and smells of Turkey are for you. Well, for me, one of the emblematic smell is uh, the balık ekmek, the mackerel sandwiches being grilled by the dogs, and it always mingles with the exhaust fumes. It's also the, the smell of kebab and köfte, meatballs, also grilled by enterprising vendors, you know, somewhere on the street. But uh, it's just like almost aggressively urban scent, uh, and there's always exhaust and honking. I love that honking. So I feel like this kind of leads us nicely into the premise of your book, national dish. You've thrown out a few different things, especially kebabs, which I think whether or not this is correct, a lot of people will associate with turkey. How do you define a national dish? Because also actually what you write about for turkey isn't kebab. Many dishes are shared between countries. Hummus, for instance. So the whole premise of the book was to see how these dishes became branded as national and why and what they mean to people. Turkey is a great example. Turkey as Turkey didn't exist until Atatürk, the father of the Turkish Republic, created a republic, a you know, modern sovereign nation from the ashes of the humiliated and defeated Ottoman Empire. And for instance, the Ottoman Empire was a multicultural entity. It had no idea of nationalism. There was almost no word Turkish Used. Turkish, you know, was somebody on a donkey. You were Armenian or Greek or Jewish. Um, so how does that cuisine become national cuisine? I love that you mentioned that because I feel like that's something that actually not everyone knows or necessarily understands about Turkish history. But my great-grandmother, who lived to 101 used to write in Arabic, and she spoke in Arabic. That was a very traumatic situation for people because Ottoman language was written in Arabic and partly Persian, and it was very complicated. But it's with a lot of the countries. Imagine Italy. We think something Italian is so eternal. There was no Italy until 1860. It was a collection of duchies and papal states. Uh, there was no notion of Italy. It, it got unified in 1860s, uh, and it's like this with a lot of countries. There were some dishes that were easy to define and that are associated with the place. Pizza, Naples. And it's very ironic that pizza became globalized so intensely and you know you find it anywhere. But it still has its place of origins, which is pretty undisputed, at least pizza as we know it, uh, which is something baked in a domed oven uh, with the tomato sauce and some cheese. Um, but pizza was also not the national dish of Italy uh, because until the late 19th century, northern Italians would come to Naples and just write how disgusting it was. They compared Naples to Africa. You know, they exoticized it. So going to Naples and spending your time walking around trying as much pizza as you could possibly find sounds like a pretty dream assignment. How did you structure your pizza research? How did you get into Naples? Well, in order to make a great narrative, 
you need a great character. And there I met these amazing characters, uh, this woman, Nunzia, who recreates old Neapolitan dishes. And you just kind of find these characters by chance. You eat a lot of stuff, you talk to a lot of people, and then you go, okay, here are the people and here are my narrative, and I want to tell my story through them because they, they are so brilliant. That fancy Neapolitan pizza with mozzarella de buffalo cheese, it didn't exist 30 years ago. People used cheap oil and cheap tomatoes from a can and your latte cheese. So we kind of imagine that everyone used, you know, those gorgeous ingredients and everyone's grandmother made this incredible thing. But part of it is true and part of it is a myth. That's so funny when I think of all the like bougie pizza places I like to go to in New York where they're like toting the the freshest of buffalo mozzarella and these sort of niche ingredients that have been like scattered over the pizza. And it's, I mean, it's delicious, but I suppose it's not what one would necessarily call, or, or I'm using air quotes for listeners, but authentic. Yeah, pizza, originally pizza didn't even have cheese necessarily. It was more like a marinara, just, you know, a flatbread smeared with tomato. Uh, and it had strutto, it had lard, which kind of gets left out of the narrative because it doesn't sound very appetizing. Anya grew up in Soviet Russia and describes harsh realities from that period as well as her mother's beloved dishes that she cooked up in their family home. In 2013, she published her award-winning memoir, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. She left Russia as a child and came to America with her mother. It was a culture shock, and so was an early trip to Paris. I had a very complicated relationship to Paris because the first time we came there, we were still refugees from the Soviet Union, and we were very poor, and I felt that just, incredibly intimidating and haughty and we couldn't afford anything. I went with my mom. I was like a teenager. And ever since I went a lot there professionally, I just I just kind of found it overbearing. That narrative, that national narrative and that narrative about Paris being the greatest city, uh, I honestly, I couldn't stand it. But uh, for this chapter, we stayed in the 13th, which is kind of like my neighborhood in New York, which is Jackson Heights, Queens, completely uh, multicultural. And I found a new generation of Parisians that are a lot more open and a lot more cosmopolitan and willing to speak English. And they are not so hung up on the supremacy of their cuisine. Paris being intimidating is part of its own myth. You know, and they kind of perpetuating and yes, aren't we Parisians awful and everyone hates us and kind of like this sort of thing, this auteur. Um, but now now it's just a lot more accessible because it lost that idea of the supremacy of its cuisine. We'll hear more about the other three countries that Anya explores later in the show. But coming up, Bon Appetit's culinary producer, Mallory Santucci, on what makes America's national dish as we approach July 4th. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. 
1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. If you're not familiar with Bon Appetit, it's the award-winning food magazine and website from our publisher, Condé Nast. I cook their recipes all the time and also happen to share an office with them. Culinary producer, Mallory Santucci. I was reading the book and I was really kind of diving into what the requirements for a national dish are. And a couple of things came to mind. First and foremost, I think that a national dish needs to be something that is eaten regularly. So, for example, it should be something that is not a fancy dish that you cook every so often. It's not like a, I don't know, a coco van thing. Exactly. Perfect example. Like, I I think that that is a dish that is representative of a place, but it is not the national dish. I think more often than not, a national dish is something more like a stew or beans and rice or something really accessible to like the everyday person who's having lunch with their family or having lunch on the way to work. What is the American national dish as people see it? Okay, I feel like I am going to lean into there are regional issues here, but I would say that generally the American national dish would be like a hamburger or a hot dog. We can't shake it. I have been fighting it. I've been like, no, there has to be something else. But I really think that if you, there are so many ways I was thinking about it. I was like, what about like Southern fried chicken or a clam chowder? Or (laughs) uh, I had somebody say a BLT, you know, like Mm -hmm. things that are just like so, I mean, My girlfriend said pizza. I mean, pizza is clearly from another place, but everyone here eats pizza. At some point, everyone's having a slice. I'm interested to get your perspective as someone who works at a leading food publication where the decisions and words that you use matter, who you think gets to decide those things. Because if Bon Appetit declares something a national dish, do they have the right to? I will probably get in trouble for saying this, but I will say absolutely not. I would say that the only people that get to claim what a national dish is are those from that place. I really believe that. I think it's the everyday people of a certain culture, certain region, certain country. Those are the people that if you said, what is the national dish? That's who you should be asking. I just think it, you know, it is funny when these things like, When other people get involved, whether it's UNESCO or governments trying to push for tourism, whatever the case may be, I think that there are national dishes that sort of get thrown out there that aren't necessarily, like I said, the everyday food. I'm trying to think about what I see it as a national dish for the UK. And when you say what people are getting for lunch, I'm like, oh, my God, that means it's like a -a Pret-a-Manger sandwich. (laughs) That is the national dish. That is the national dish. How grim. (laughs) Capitalism has prevailed. Uh, Yeah, it's interesting. Like the UK, you know, there is so much cultural influence, chicken tikka masala being on the list of, you know, national dish in the UK. But what about something like um, that is more traditionally from that place? 
eaten historically from that place. The UK trips me up sometimes. Yeah. I read somewhere somebody said fish and chips, and I was like, I mean, I roll my eyes a bit. I, but. <laughs> Oh, it's tough. Yeah. Uh, That's probably why the country is having such an identity crisis right now anyway. (laughs) (laughs) If you think of China, you think of Peking duck, but that is not a dish that's eaten every day regularly by, you know, the everyday man. It is a dish that's probably reserved for special occasions. I mean, we can get into this. National dishes that have kind of gone wrong. I think that the example that always comes to mind for me is pad thai. People often, yes. (laughs) Wait, tell me more. Uh, So I have this thing with pad thai. I mean, it's delicious. Everyone likes it. And it's very popular here. But I would say if you were to ask a Thai person, I don't think that pad thai is as popular or as eaten as often there. I think that there are probably other dishes that represent like the everyday food for a Thai person. I think it just happens to be a dish that caught on very sort of fantastically in the U.S. and people love it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's great when, I mean, mean, working with what in the field that I do, I love food, I love to eat, and I love to eat food from everywhere in the world. Um, So there's absolutely nothing wrong with like a popular dish from somewhere else. It's a beautiful thing right to yeah. you know to have countries adopt adopt these dishes as mm-hmm. you know hopefully not try and claim them or appropriate them yeah but to show them love and value is yeah. a great thing i learned so much from anya's book and she shatters a lot of myths and there's a lot of history mm-hmm. when you were reading it as someone who works in food what were some of the surprises you know historically it's not all peachy it's not all right. nice but i do think that it's to me, so cool. And in her book, like such an exciting part is like you understand the history and therefore you understand how everyone sort of has their food culture now. It's also borders as we know them currently a relatively modern construct. Of course. Which also makes the whole idea of a national dish a total construct. Completely. I was thinking about how like khao soy is such a regional dish in Thailand that everyone in northern Thailand really, really loves. I just shot an episode for Epicurious um, for Passport Kitchen and we filmed making khao soy and it was such an amazing experience and so fun. But we talked about on that episode and myself with the chef while we were filming, we were talking about how because it's northern Thailand, there's all sorts of influence from like the border of China. And so it just speaks to how like before these borders existed, before there was such a, you know, rigid, each country has its own space, um, you know, there were just things that were being shared or influences that sort of um, bleed over these lines. So if we are defining a national dish (laughs) by it being accessible, and by accessible really we mean cheap, Cheap or eaten every day, eaten every not day. a special occasion. And we're going to land on the hamburger. <laughs> and then, you know, listeners, I can't believe I'm saying it. <laughs> get in the comments, get in the reviews, <laughs> tell us how we're wrong, get angry. Um, I'm all right with being wrong. I really, I swear I did. I, I challenged myself to think outside of the hot dog and the hamburger, but I kept coming back to it. After the break, a fascinating celebration that takes place when Anya visits Oaxaca, as well as her take on Japan's national dish. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs, and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Another food capital. I got to experience myself, albeit for only three days, and therefore felt absolutely intimidated. Just in terms of where to start is Tokyo. Um, and you mentioned ramen. And one of the things that actually really struck me was that ramen, at least when I was there from my sort of snapshot, was that it was often like a late night drunk food that a lot, a lot of people were sort of shoveling into their mouths at the end of a night, um, which I was so surprised by because that's just not how ramen is being served in New York or, or London or any of the places that I've kind of got to actually know it. Yeah, it's very funny. The original ramen was a Chinese dish and then it became street food dispensed from carts called yatai that had like a signature flute, talking about sounds. Um, yeah, and you scarfed it down drunk late at night after a party. And then came the sort of brick and mortar ramen, yeah. And it was also something very democratic. But then in the 90s, it became something gourmet. And there, you know, I note the parallels with pizza. It's kind of the same story. You have this, you know, slightly scorned, you know, poor man's food, and then it becomes this gourmet item, right? And then it's exported to New York and London and re, you know, re-imported back with this new status as like this indie icon of uh, of indie chefs. There's this um, Abraham Plout, this uh, American ramen expert that became so famous in Japan because he ate so much ramen uh, that he had a column, I think, in, in Japanese Playboy, and he is on TV opining on, on ramen. But the other, the other dish in my book is rice. And I hooked up with this incredible cooking teacher and he's a scion of uh, a cooking dynasty, the Yanagihara Cooking School. And he was my oracle in all things traditional uh, and everything that had to do with rice. I think what we at least like, or at least I think of in terms of national dishes, and when you say like pizza and ramen, is it feels like a comfort food. With the exception of Istanbul, where you spend a lot of time, was there a place where you found yourself feeling most at home eating out of these cities? Was there a a dish or I guess a a way of communing around the dinner table that you felt comforted by? I actually like the the opposite of, of a comfort. I, you know, I really feel at home in Spain with the tapas bar culture. I just love the style of eating, shuffling from bar to bar um, because it's such easy socializing. I know Mexico quite well, but I've never been to Oaxaca which feels very remiss of me because it feels like the heart of Mexican food in a lot of ways. Oaxaca is Mexico's most indigenous state uh, with different ethnicities uh, and 16 different languages. 
and um, it's kind of become an experiment in indigeneity and multiculturalism. And um, the dishes I chose in Oaxaca was mole, which is this very complicated colonial sauce. Um, and it represents Mexico's mixed identity. But the other, the other dish I investigate is a tortilla and the cultural maize and the role of women uh, in preserving that tradition. And the Oaxaca chapter also has a surprise because my partner and I, and we've been together for over 30 years, we end up getting married in the shamanic ceremony. Describe that scene a little bit. I mean, without too many spoilers, but... That was incredible. It actually was all because of mezcal, the drink. We went to a palenque where they make mezcal. And the maestro mezcalero looked at us and said, how long have you guys been together? We said, well, for like 30 years. And he said, well, how come you guys are not married? We're like, ha you know, our accountant doesn't think it's a great idea. And he looked <laughs> at us very seriously and he said, no, I think you should get married. And I can marry you because I'm actually married people before because I'm, I'm sort of a shaman. Uh, so all my friends in Oaxaca said, oh, yes, let's have a border. Anya, let's have a wedding. Um, so the mezcalero came with his friends and uh, there was a lot of herbs that they were waving and incantations. Before that, we he had to get down on his knees <laughs> And asked for my hand and deliver a candle and chocolate. So it was we, we, we did it the whole way. And it was kind of like funny until it became very emotional because we have so many friends and so many wonderful people that helped us uh, with my book in Oaxaca. And they were very, everyone was extremely moved by it. And it was in the roof of a beautiful restaurant with a gorgeous view and much mezcal was drunk and much mole was eaten. You must have a different relationship to both mole and mezcal now after that. Yes, and, and uh, they gave us beautiful gifts. You know, I have a little metate, you know, the grinding stone, which comes uh, and all these maze decorations. And every time I look at that, I think about that magical, magical day. Oh, I love it. I want to go get married, just how you did it, even though I am married, but I want to do it again and do it how you did. People do it. People go and renew their vows. No, seriously, it's, it's, it's kind of great. Anya's epilogue ended up being quite different from how she'd originally envisioned it. I had a different epilogue in mind uh, for the book. I wanted to do Thanksgiving in Jackson Heights, my multicultural neighborhood. And then tragically, the war broke out with Ukraine. And Borscht became the subject of contention and dispute between Ukraine and Russia. Borscht is something that most people ate in the former Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, where I grew up, was an empire. It was kind of like Ottoman Empire in a way. And there was all these different ethnic republics with their own languages and their own cultures. But borscht was sort of eaten throughout. And my mom made it and everyone's mom made it. But it is also a Ukrainian dish. And Ukrainians really claimed it as their national dish, understandably because there's a deep historic connection there. And it's unfortunately unresolved. But Ukrainians did get the UNESCO Borscht was included in UNESCO Heritage, and we all applauded and cheered, and they deserve it. That epilogue sounds really, really, really hard 
to write? I really had to do a lot of uh, digging and self-examination about our attitudes towards Ukraine. Um, and I started learning Ukrainian and reading borscht recipes in Ukrainian. And um, it was kind of a mea culpa. I, I suddenly felt guilty for being Russian, for reading Pushkin and Dostoevsky, for speaking the language of the aggressor, and for thinking that borscht was our dish. It sounds like there was so much on this journey that was actually enlightening on a personal level. Zooming out a little bit from all this research, you know, what surprised you the most? Was it a place or was it the evolution of your view on a national dish? Most of the surprises were how recent and how manufactured a lot of these stories were, but at the same time, how important they are to people. Did you walk away from this still thinking that there was a place for this within food culture? I think it's, it's inevitable because faced uh, with globalization and with complete dissolution of boundaries and identities uh, and of us eating a pizza or sushi, you know, in a mountain in Peru somewhere or in Uzbekistan, I think it was ine inevitable that the nations would rally around their, what they consider their heritage. It's a normal reaction to globalization. Amazing. Ah, oh, so fruitful. All right, well, have a lovely evening um, filled with delicious food. Thank you, you too. I'm jealous you're in Turkey. I'm sure you'll be back soon now. Oh, cross fingers, I hope so. And thanks for chatting so late at night. It must be about midnight for you now, so. Yeah, it's fine. No, 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 <laughs> All right, have a good night. Ciao. Anya von Bremsen's National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food History and the Meaning of Home, is out now. And Mallory can be found on Instagram by her full name, Mallory Santucci. Next week, we have a ball with comedians, podcast co-hosts, and best friends, Nicole Bayer and Sashir Zamata, as they deconstruct some hilarious holidays they've had together and give me some advice on traveling with friends. See you then. I'm Lale Arakoglu, and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hanna. Our engineers are Jake Loomis and Gabe Kuroga. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. Duke Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. See you next week. Are you ever minding your own business when you start to wonder, how do killer whales work? Who are Hollywood's paparazzi? Did British sailors get it on in the 1800s with each other? I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week on Getting Curious, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. Honey, we explore everything around here with scientists, historians, activists, entertainers, and other brilliant guest experts. You can join me every Wednesday for an all-new topic with an all-new expert on Getting Curious. Listen to Getting Curious wherever you get your podcasts.